With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Well, but welcome to the 68th episode of my show. You know, I'm used using this show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also want to provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions so that it can help them to improve information security in their own lives and to better protect their privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in. Thank you to all my listeners. I truly do appreciate you. Now, for those of you in Luxembourg, I am giving three talks at the Price Waterhouse Coopers, better known by some as PWC, Cybersecurity Day Conference. I'm going to be giving two talks on October 24th and then another keynote on October 25th. I will be speaking on emerging privacy risks, addressing them, and how information security and privacy risks have evolved over the years. I'll also be touching on current risks related to new tech and the challenges in addressing them. And then I'm going to provide some info about my career in IT, information security and privacy, and how others can also navigate their careers by learning, not only from just my experiences, but also the experiences of all others who have been in these fields for a very long time. So if you want to see more about this event, go to the website, cybersecurityweek.lu. I was also a speaker on October 1st for the National Small Business Administration, or NSBA, Cybersecurity Webinar. Now, that event addressed questions from small businesses about cybersecurity and major computer chip defects, the processor chips, and also the growing pains of the 5G network. I spent around 15 minutes discussing the processor chip security and privacy vulnerabilities, and I gave some advice and some actions to take to mitigate those associated risks. You can listen and watch the broadcast on the nsba.biz website. 
If any of you are interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please also get in touch. I'm currently doing one show a month. However, if you are interested in sponsoring another show each month, perhaps on a specific privacy, information security, IT, or compliance topic, then get in touch with me. And also, for all of you, keep that feedback and all your questions coming in. My October Privacy Professor Tips message was published on September 27th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please sign up for them. I've been providing them free since 2007 in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to use to send to their employees. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now to my security and privacy tip of the month. On September 23rd, Microsoft published a security bulletin. It was Security Bulletin CVE 2019-1367. And it described a scripting engine memory corruption vulnerability that exists within, well, basically every version of the Internet Explorer browser for Windows 7, Windows 8.1, and Windows 10. So just one more security problem with the Internet Explorer browser. So my tip, well, (laughs) bluntly, it is to stop using the Internet Explorer browser. I've not used it for many years because of the security and privacy risks that have long plagued that browser. Instead, I generally use Firefox, which uh, what I've used for many years. Now, some other good options are the Tor browser. Now, Tor has really great security and privacy controls. However, this great amount of security does come at a cost in speed and usability features. So you may not want to use it for your everyday daily browsing. You know, I use it primarily when I go to sites that involve sensitive data. The Chrome browser is fairly good if you use Google Drive because of the compatibility there. Or another one is a vast, secure browser. So on today's topic, this is an important one, and I haven't talked about it yet on my show, but it's about ethical white hat hacking and physical security testing and the related ethical issues. And after a recent widely reported incident. Nationally, it was reported in the U.S. and even beyond borders to to other countries that I've heard from. It involved an information security vendor, Coal Fire. And after I heard about this, I was motivated to talk about the topic, especially since this occurred right here in my home city of Des Moines, Iowa. So, what happened with Coal Fire? Well, very basically and simplistically stated, Coal Fire was engaged by the Iowa Federal 
judicial agency that's based here in the city where I live again in Des Moines to try and break into networks and actual government buildings as a type of white hack hacker. And they were also uh, engaged to do social engineering and also physical security tests. So for those of you who may not be aware, Des Moines is the capital of Iowa. However, the buildings that Coal Fire was reportedly contracted to break into were not just limited to those for federal buildings within the state of Iowa, but they were also for multiple county agency buildings. Now, for listeners who may not know, U.S. federal government agencies run separately from states' government agencies, and each of the state government agencies are run completely separately from all the county government agencies in the associated states. So Iowa has 99 counties, and then going beyond the counties, we have over a 1,000 cities and towns. And each one of those towns also have their own city government agencies and buildings that are separate from the county, which is separate from the state, which is separate from the federal. So keep that in mind as we go through this discussion. Now, all these government agencies at these different levels typically do not communicate or coordinate on decisions or projects as any requirement under any law or even as an unwritten practice. So back to the situation. A federal government agency based in Des Moines, Iowa, reportedly contracted security vendor Coal Fire to perform social engineering, network hacking, physical lock picking, trying to break into buildings and so on, not only on their own federal buildings here in the Des Moines area, but also against some Iowa county government buildings. So think about that for a moment after what I just described, and keep this in mind, the coal fire workers, again, contracted by the Des Moines-based federal agency, were arrested when they were caught by police late at night trying to lock pick the doors and break into the Dallas County Courthouse. Dallas County is adjacent to Polk County, here where Des Moines is located. That's where the federal agency's building is located in Polk County. Coal fire was also reportedly determined after the fact to have been caught on surveillance camera trying to break into the Polk County courthouse, which is not a federal building. The Dallas County police that arrested them reportedly had no knowledge that this would occur. And reportedly, no one at the Dallas County Police Station up through the highest ranks knew anything about such a contracted break-in test either. So, the coal fire folks were arrested, they were booked, their mugshots were shown throughout Iowa and beyond, and they were talked about on TV and newspapers and online. Now, the contract that coal fire reportedly used did allow for physical break-in attempts. But here in the Des Moines area anyway, on our local news, they showed several different times a copy of the contract that indicated that break-in and lock-picking activities 
were not supposed to occur after normal work hours, and reportedly they did not go beyond the federal buildings as a part of the scope of that project. So many in the information security uh, consultancy world came to the coal fire vendors defense claiming that this wasn't something that they did. It wasn't their problem. It was a problem with the federal agency hiring them. So it wasn't their fault. However, based on what was reported on many times, I'm wondering, you know, why didn't Coal Fire go through their due diligence to ensure all senior management for all locations where they were doing attempted break-ins, why didn't they make sure that everyone was aware so they wouldn't have a situation occur just like the one that they were ultimately caught in, being arrested and booked for burglary? You know, I used to do these types of tests in the early 2000s, and one thing I always made sure that senior management knew what was going on at each facility just in case the police or security guards did approach me. I mean, I didn't want to go someplace and, you know, be caught and arrested. And voila, that's what happened just recently here in Des Moines. You know, the coal fire folks surely knew. I mean, I, I mean, they should have that in the U.S., Federal buildings are governed by different branches and groups than the county government buildings. So there's so much that's still not known about this case and so many lessons that you can uh, have from coal fires reported mistakes and likely by their federal clients also. I mean, there's clearly mistakes which were made by both parties Now, this, of course, resulted in the rest of two of their workers. So lessons about the need to have strong and clear communications with clients when you're doing risk assessments and other type of security work, especially, for goodness sakes, when you're trying to break into facilities. And then if you're doing it late at night, (laughs) I mean, of course, there's going to be police that might catch you and not believe you when you say, yeah, you know, nothing's Nothing to see here. We're just doing what people hired us to do, and then there's no one to corroborate their um, their story. So what's been reported here in Des Moines about the incident also is that they weren't at the buildings at the agreed-upon times. You know, there's so many different different lessons to this. And if you don't make sure that you're doing – Every, all your due diligence and making sure everyone at an executive level knows what's going on when you're doing white hat hacking or especially when you're breaking into buildings, uh, you might be arrested as a result. So after thinking about this situation, I, I want to discuss this further on one of my shows. And I know just the person to speak with about this topic on ethical and operational considerations for penetration testing, white hat hacking, and security audits that include physical security break-ins and so on. Because today, my guest has taught university classes on this topic for many years. He's written numerous books and articles about this. And so he has some really great insights 
Today, I'm discussing these topics with a longtime good friend who is also a brilliant IT software engineering and all-around security topics guru. Today, I'm really happy to welcome back to the show Dr. Mish Kabay. Now, Mish began programming in 1965, and he's worked in many areas of tech from that point to today. Mish was a member of the committees that defined the Common Body of Knowledge for the Certified Information System Security Professional, or CISSP, designation, which I anticipate many of you listening actually have or want to have. Mish has published over 2,000 articles, and he's written a college textbook on enterprise security, and he's served as technical editor for multiple editions of the Computer Security Handbook that is published by Wiley. Mish has also been a lecturer at the United States War College, the Pentagon, NATO headquarters in Brussels, and at the NATO counterintelligence training in Germany. And Not only that, you can probably tell he's very accomplished in many areas, but he was also inducted into the ISSA Hall of Fame in 2004. Now, Mish also created the Bachelor of Science and Master of Science programs in Information Assurance at Norwich University, and he served as director of that master's degree program until 2009. Mish still continues to teach full-time for the undergraduate studies to this day. Mish, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you, but my head is exploding well, me. You, you've done so much, and so I know that you're just the perfect person to talk about this situation. Well, it's certainly, it's certainly uh, absolutely interesting, and the irony is that last Friday, mm-hmm. in my Introduction to Information Assurance course, I was telling students about preparations for penetration testing. So your your request came in a couple of few days after I had spent uh, two lectures in my uh, course uh, explaining to students the background, the environment in which we can safely and effectively conduct penetration tests, what you've been calling white hat uh, testing or white hat hacking. Well, this is perfect timing then. So, you know, I'm really yep. curious. Um what are your thoughts about the coal fire situation because and the arrests that I, I just described you know earlier? I mean, of course, I'm hearing about it all the time since it happened right here in the city, but I know that probably the message being sent other places is different. I, th- I think the overall message is what you've already articulated. That is, that we absolutely need to get thorough discussion with all relevant authorities, and I include local police forces. It would have been a straightforward preparation for the authorities who contacted all of the other authorities whose buildings were supposed to be tested, because you mentioned that that was not the case. Mm-hmm. Those ex those managers could legitimately have made contact with the local police, explained what was going to happen. I would even invite a squad car to come and observe 
Why not? The police could have been present. It would have been a collaborative effort. The um, penetration testers would be safe. They wouldn't be a subject to sudden assault if somebody decided that they were bad people. All of that is the consequence of careful coordination and planning. And I yes. think uh, we have lots more that we can discuss in detail, but that's the overall message. We do not do penetration testing without thorough planning and communication. And then there are relevant documents which must be verified to accurately describe the kinds of penetration that are being authorized by the legitimate authorities who own or supervise or manage the resources under test. Yes. And, you know, something else I didn't mention at uh, the beginning, the lead-in to to our discussion is on one of the news reports, um, it was reported. And, again, this is all reported, so I don't know. You know, you take that with a grain of salt, right, when you hear something that's so-and-so said something and they're reporting it. But, anyway, they said that the – federal agency said had told uh, the vendor that they did not want anyone else to know because they didn't want them to then go and maybe change their practices ahead of time before they actually tried to do the break-ins. But when I heard them report that, it seemed very, you know, it seemed very, um, likely that that probably happened because that used to happen to me as well. I mean, have you seen that too when working on your own projects and and speaking with master students who are in, you know, who are professionals in the security uh, fields? I hear a lot of times clients say, well, oh, we don't want to tell people we're going to do this because then they're going to prepare ahead. But that seems like you're just – it's a disaster waiting to happen because they don't realize what could happen to the people actually then doing the the work. Well, I I object very strongly to that very notion. On the contrary, I have uh, always insisted that the people, whether technical and non-technical, be informed that there would be penetration tests, although not the exact time, or mm-hmm. methods as part of awareness, training, and education efforts. The penetration test is not a contest where we win by finding unsolved, unclosed vulnerabilities. The whole process is designed explicitly to help organizations close their vulnerabilities, preferably before the the expensive efforts go into play. Why on earth would we want the vulnerabilities still to be there? We ought to be engaging the personnel in the organizations with full awareness that the purpose is continuous process improvement. This is not an attack. It's not a game. We're not looking to blame people. We are endeavoring to collaborate to improve the security of all the systems under test. And that gets done before the penetration tests to the degree possible in the organization. 
I, I just am horrified at the notion that managers would say, no, no, we don't want to improve security before the test. That's just wrongheaded. Yeah, what we want yeah. is to improve the culture of the organization to integrate security as part of the normal operating standards. Yes, yes. And I want to reemphasize two key points I heard you make there, too. One was that it's okay to tell them that you're doing it, but not you don't need to tell them the exact day and time, right? So that's fine. Right. I mean, it's okay if they prepare and improve security because that's the ultimate goal. So you, you don't have to tell them that you're going to show up at 11 o'clock at night at a, the north door of a building to do lock picking. Although that might be good, like you indicated earlier, if uh, you did want a few people there just to have them observe what's going on, especially if it's the po- local police and so on. Yeah. Um, in, in and it, Indeed, one of the principal, just a quick note that um, yeah. my company when I was in Canada was called Jinbu Corporation, which is Chinese for progress. And oh. it, 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 was, it had the motto, progress towards autonomy. And my contract stipulated that whatever I was doing in an organization, whether operations or security, I must have an assigned staff member accompanying me to learn. Yes. And so if I uh, do a penetration test, I want a security professional from the organization with me so Mm -hmm. we can discuss why are we doing this, what are the details, here's what I recommend, Uh, you could do this yourself, that kind of, as I say, continuous process improvement. Yes. That's such a great additional point have someone from the client the vendor have someone from the client they're working for accompanying them and then I guess the other point you made was that you don't want this to be a a type of gotcha project you you are doing this like you said to raise awareness you're not doing it to try to catch somebody's doing wrong and place blame on them Um, right now we believe it or not it's time for a quick break So uh, right now we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Uh, Today I'm speaking with Dr. Mish Kabay about ethical and operational considerations for penetration testing, white hat hacking, and physical security break-in tests. And after we come back from the break, we're going to get into some more details about what you need to think about if you're going to contract a company to do this for you or if you're a company that's providing these types of activities. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as show topic suggestions and so on using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. As a business, are you taking care of the needs of your customers? Here's a secret. We don't buy things because of what they do. We buy them because of what they mean. We are what we buy with host Dr. Michael Solomon digs deep to find out the real meanings that drive today's consumers. These insights will keep you one step ahead of your competition and help you to delight your customers. Tune in every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Mish Kabay about ethical and operational considerations for penetration testing, white hat hacking, and physical security break-ins. And we just talked about a real-life situation uh, with coal fire that actually happened here in my home city of Des Moines, Iowa. But Mish, I think now let's expand our view a little bit and let's start considering some recommendations for um, when an organization might want to hire an outside entity to perform hacking or trying to break into facilities and so on. Can you provide us with some situations, times, and so on? Sure. I think that external experts, and they can be from completely separate companies, or if you're dealing with a very large organization that has several sites, perhaps it can be expert security experts from a different location or a different unit within the larger company. Those external examinations, in my view, should be required. And there's a, a good, solid social psychological reason. We know that whether people like it or not, some people become defensive about whatever it is they're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, whether consciously or not, I repeat, they may start thinking that the purpose of a vulnerability analysis or penetration test is to show that there are no holes. Mm-hmm. That's just plain wrong. All quality assurance uh, 
whether it's of code or products, or in our case, uh, security systems, must have the orientation of looking as hard as we can for problems. This is not an attack. I repeat, Mm -hmm. it's part of continuous process improvement. If the psychology interferes by saying, oh, it would be better if I didn't find any problems, there is a risk that consciously or unconsciously people may overlook what they should have examined. They may make assumptions. They may say, oh, surely we, we don't do that, so we don't need to test it. So I think that the external experts can play a valuable role. Another issue... I believe, is the frequency of such testing. And Mm. it seems to me that the worse our previous security tests were, the the sooner we should test again. I think Mm -hmm. we should provide opportunities for learning from those states and fixing the systems that went wrong and then testing again. It's part of a continuous process. The other issue, I believe, that we should consider is what we can call the criticality of the data. Some data are mission critical. For example, if a organization sells things, then the accounting system and the order system, the customer relations and order-taking systems are mission critical. Less so in that circumstance might, for example, be... The human resources system, okay, it went down for a day or two, but it's not the end of the world. But if you're trying to make the company, in this case, successful, having your sales drop to zero for two days could be bankruptcy time. Mm-hmm. So those, that's just some factors to consider. Um, but a more important concept that you and I have talked about is that we have to ensure adequate preparation before we waste our money on paid penetration testing, whether it's carried out by our own employees, in which case it's their salary time, or if it's carried out by external experts. And you and I have chatted about this, that I, I argue that it's as silly to try to have penetration testing without preparation as mm-hmm. claiming that we don't need to take care of our children's dental hygiene. We need <laughs> to send them to the dentist to discover how many caries they have every six months. <laughs> That's not going to work. So, yes. what are some of the preparations? And, and again, I think one of the most important is to examine and optimize our security policies using well-established standards that are appropriate for the organization's work. And examples that that we've been thinking about are things like the Federal Information Processing Standards, or FIPS, for government-related organizations in the United States, or Mm -hmm. standards from, say, the National Institute of Standards and Technology Center, um, the, uh, uh, sorry, CSRC, the Resource Center, uh, the SP-800 documents are well-established. And personally, I've been using for decades, and and he's now in, I don't even remember what edition he's in, Charles Cresson Woods. Wonderful resource, information security policies made easy. And no, I have no financial relationship with Cresson Woods. His Mm -hmm. work 
actually does something I've recommended for decades. It provides contradictory policies with explanations of why each version might be appropriate. So that as you write your policies, you can choose among a wide menu of sound approaches, and he explains them. So you can have a link that says, why, right next to your policy. And that's what I've always done, um, because the policies I was writing were already in a time of hypertext. And Mm -hmm. so uh, it was easy. You know, you have the policy, and then you have a little link that says, why, a question mark or the word why. So that, that's helpful. Use standards. Learn from other organizations. Learn from other experts. Another tool that I believe is critically important is to ensure A, T, and E, awareness, training, and education. The awareness, and, and this is something that, that I didn't find common, the awareness should focus not only on protecting the organization's values and and critical information. It should look at the consequences of failure both for the employer and for the individual employees. Mm -hmm. Those consequences could be loss of employment, loss of salary, loss of bonuses. Um, They could be, for example, personal. And the example I always use is what if, our employees don't understand how important it is to lock their session before leaving their computer unsupervised. You don't want some sociopath using an employee's email to do illegal things, sending death threats, uh, downloading child pornography. Those are illegal, and they can cause havoc. So that's... And I'm positive that this is part of your work because you are the Mm -hmm. privacy professor. Awareness Mm -hmm. that these matters issue helps us focus our employees into taking care of what we want them to protect. Another tool that I suspect you use, and, and I'd love to hear some of your examples, is the training part, right? we talked about awareness. You know, why does this matter and what should I be sensitive to? Training, in my view, can often include role-playing. First of all, mm-hmm. it's fun. But more important, role-playing is, is extraordinarily striking for the people participating. Suppose you wanted to, say, fight piggybacking. Um, People may know that term. I don't mean physically holding somebody on your back. Piggybacking in security means following an authorized person through a restricted entry, usually because of the ignorance of the other person or possibly trickery, uh, intimidation, that kind of social engineering. And so the unauthorized Mm -hmm. person somehow manages to get through the security barrier without registering. That's very dangerous. Uh, Even if the person does have authority, it means the log files are wrong. And what if that person's unconscious and there's a fire and we don't know they're in there? Well, I think that practicing politely reminding the other person in a simulation that, no, no, uh, you have to put your card through so that the system knows you're in there and it could protect you in case of an emergency. That's practice, and once you've done it, once or twice, 
either as the person refusing the access or the person pretending to want to piggyback, I think, in my experience, that kind of exercise really makes a difference to the people who have gone through the exercises. How about you, uh, Rebecca? Have you seen that kind of effectiveness? Well, yes, and in fact, kind of related back to when you want to bring in an outside entity to do this, uh, it it relates directly to that because you give those types of awareness activities and include that in training, then that's when you want to test out with someone that people don't know, right, (laughs) that they they haven't had this training from. So that's when maybe you want to contract some outside entity to do that type of piggybacking in because you don't want in certain situations like that for the employees to recognize someone who's a co-worker doing that. Uh, so, yeah. So I think that yeah. would be a fa- very effective there. And then I wanted to come back to a point you made, too, about, you know, why you might not want to have or why you would want to have an outside entity come in. I guess related to that is that sometimes a person, when they've created the, the policies or created the physical security, oftentimes when you create something, you know, that's your baby, right? That's your creation. Sometimes you might be blind and don't see where the holes or the vulnerabilities are. So that's when an outside set of fresh objective eyes would be good to come in and give you their opinion from, you know, an outsider's view. So, um yeah, I, I think all of those fit together. And like you said, you need that awareness and training and education first um, before you consider contracting someone from the outside to come in and then test if what you put in place actually is working. You know, it's kind of funny, too, what, while you're describing that, I was thinking of so many times, Mish, over the, the years I've had people, especially like for HIPAA, I've worked with a lot of hospitals and clinics and insurance companies. They want to do a risk assessment to meet the HIPAA requirement, right? Well, a lot of times they'll ask me to do the risk assessment, and they've not even started creating their program yet. And I always recommend to them, and and this goes against what I've heard so many other vendors recommend, though. So many other vendors say, well, you have to do a risk assessment first. But for organizations who have nothing in place yet, I'm like, well, let's get your program started. And then after you put it in place, then then I could come in and do the assessment. It's like your dental, your dentist example. Why do you want me to come in and tell you you've got nothing in place and you're doing everything wrong when you you know what you need to do, go do it, and then I'll tell you where you have gaps. So those are great points. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. And one other example that we can use in trying to persuade people, some people may understand that when we write something, Mm -hmm. sometimes we can assume that we have explained clearly or established what we need, but but we're making assumptions based on our own knowledge, and an external editor can be of enormous value. That's yes. exactly parallel to what you and I are talking about. We're, we're talking about basically not even noticing 
that we've left something out because we mm-hmm. assume that it must be okay. And, and yes. so, again, continuous process improvement, external eyes, objective evaluation, these are very, very helpful. Yes, yes. Well, okay, so now we've, we've gotten to the point where we've, we've done our awareness and tra- training, we have our policies, we think we've gotten everything in place. Now we want to take that next step to get an organization from outside contracted. So what kind of questions should um, the organization ask of vendors to validate you know, their trustworthiness, their abilities to make sure that they're really qualified to do what we want them to do? Well, I sure hope that the potential client uh, does the normal background checking. You, it, it wouldn't make sense to me to allow somebody to test something as critical as security or anything else that is mission critical without actually doing our homework. Can't we just normally contact uh, a few of the clients mm. of this organization? Mm-hmm. We make sure that the people who are being proposed as clients really are. We do our homework. We make sure everyone's being honest. And I think that background checks, depending on how critical the situation is, background checks may be worth the money. Uh, yes, it could be thousands of dollars, but... Uh, if you're running a high-security environment where perhaps millions of dollars are at stake, then spending a, a modest amount verifying the bona fides of the individuals and of the company involved, or the organization involved, seems to me to be uh, something that, that should at least be discussed and evaluated. But I wouldn't yes. hire a stranger off the street to test uh, the security of my house, why would I do that for the company? Well, yeah, that's a very good point. Now, I know some organizations and my uh, listeners outside of the U.S., especially in Europe right now, you know, they're uh, dealing with the the GDPR, uh, the General Data Processing Regulation. And so a lot of the laws there don't allow for background check on individuals. However, you know, business entities, that's where you get into something different. So even if you can't do a background check on an individual, you can still do checks on the organization as a business, right? To see if uh, they've been around very long, if they've had complaints, if there's been incidents and things like that. Well, you can answer this, uh, Becky, better than I can. Wouldn't it be possible to have a signed agreement from the employees of a contractor as part of their employment contract, allowing a background check yeah. in Europe? Getting that, yes, yes, and that's a good point that you bring up, getting their explicit consent to yes. uh, provide that information. So, yes, very good yes. point. I brought you, this should I'm not glad be you brought that up. sub rosa. This should all be part of uh, the open discussion that is preparation mm-hmm. for a sound uh, a penetration test. Right. I, I would also, I would also personally, I used to do this when I hired people. I ran a data center way back 30 years ago. I was running a large data center, and, and of course I would have to hire people for operations. And I routinely inserted a false 
reference to see what people would do. Like, <laughs> you know, we'd be talking about uh, vulnerabilities or something. So, so what do you think about the latest, and you make up a name, you know, the Gazorna Platz or whatever. <laughs> uh, you just make something up and see that they answer, I don't know that. I tell my students about this, you know. I tell mm-hmm. don't you ever pretend to know something you don't, any, yeah. ever. Uh, let alone in a job interview, and and those who lied never got any further. I don't want dishonest people in my operations crew. So that would be something that's, you know, just a little, uh, I guess I would call it a a technique that ensures that you're dealing with somebody who's honest. Other, Other ideas, I think it would make sense to actually look at a redacted report mm-hmm. in which all identifying information about the client involved has been removed. It's not even possible to tell where it was done or when. But I would like to see a report that mm-hmm. gives an example of the clarity of the methodology, uh, just demonstrating competence before yes. we pay a lot of money and have them potentially damage our systems. So um, well, that's another practical idea. Oh, it's very practical. I love that because not only does it demonstrate competence, but it shows you what they would give to you, right, if you contracted them. And so that can help you to see how much detail they go into or, you know, what type of topics they cover. Um, so that way, you don't, you, you know, when you get your final report, you aren't surprised when you get a two-page summary that says, hey, everything looks fine. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, and I lo- Rebecca, I, <laughs> I can't help sharing one of my favorite stories, which yes. is that for a government contract in 1989, I was mm-hmm. asked if they, uh, should, I was doing operations management work there, uh, should they trade in their existing computer and, and spend another $2 million in 1989 on a new computer? And so, I did the report, I did the analysis, and I said, executive summary, colon, 20 lines of blank space, centered in the middle of the page, the word no, and 20 <laughs> lines of blank space after it. The next page said, slightly less executive summary, and that's where I actually put the methodology and the results and the advice and so forth. But I've never forgotten my delight at being able to write the executive summary consisting of a single word. Well, I love that, that because they a- that's what they asked you, right? They asked you a yes that's or right. no question, so in summary, it's no. Oh, I love that. Love that's good. That. And, you know, I also yeah. love your point about not being dishonest or trying to, you know, oh, if gosh. you don't know, if oh, you don't God. know, don't try to make it up because, you know, Mish, I, I've oh. learned that I have a lot of, of uh, high schools and colleges listening to my show now. And I, I think it's really important to emphasize to those listeners and even those new to the field that don't fake it. Um, if you're oh. doing, you know, work for someone, you have to, if you don't know, just say you don't know, but you'll look into it, right? Absolutely. Do you know, uh, that, uh, Rebecca, that, In every course I have taught since 1970, I have had continuous process improvement, extra credits. And my students know that if they find a typo, if they find some way of improving a slide or fixing a question in a test, 
they get thanked publicly and they yeah. get an extra point added to their scores. Yes. And I, I believe so firmly in that. Uh, not knowing something is not evil. Pretending to, kn- to know something you don't know, that's evil. It is, because then your clients are going to take actions that could hurt them. So listeners don't oh, do boy. that. That's not going to get you no. ahead. It might get you a project in the short term, but it's going to harm your per- career in the long term. Yeah. So, um, hey, Mish, we're already almost to the end of our hour, believe it or not. Yes. I want I want <laughs> you to let our listeners know, you know, a key point about using external white hat hacking and facility break-in services and companies. What do you want our listeners to take away from our conversation today? Well, my guess is they know this now. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Pen testing requires thorough preparation. Testing before you've done the best you can to secure your systems, including... Improving the awareness and training of your staff is a waste of your time and money. And make sure that everyone who needs to know what you're doing knows it, right? So you don't get arrested and yeah. your mugshot is oh, is yeah. blasted everywhere. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for being on today. I really have enjoyed our conversation, Mish. Well, we always have fun, Rebecca. We always have a good time. I always learn so much from you, so thanks. Um, So today I've been speaking with Dr. Mish Kabe about ethical and operational considerations for penetration testing, white hat hacking, and physical security break-in tests. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Let me know. Do you have another topic to suggest that I cover? Or do you have a guest to suggest? Or... What other topic do you think that either my listeners would be interested in hearing about or that you would learn a lot about if you uh, would hear it on this show? And uh, I know I've heard from some people, too, saying, hey, I'd like to be a guest because I have this expertise. Well, let me know. You can contact me with questions, comments, and provide me with your show topic ideas using Rebecca Herald at RebeccaHerald.com. Please tune into my show. Right now, I'm at a monthly, uh, a monthly new show. So, if you cannot make our scheduled live time on Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific time on the first Saturday of each month, you will always be able to listen to the recordings. And of course, you can find the recordings of all my past shows on iTunes and Mobile Play and Stitcher.com and all the other apps that you might want to use. In addition to the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website, and I also categorize them on my own privacyguidance.com website. So if you're interested in certain categories of topics, you can contact them or listen to them from there. Also, let me know if you need any information, security, privacy, and compliance keynotes or any other help with security and privacy. And of course, you can visit my YouTube channel, which is The Privacy Professor. I urge you all to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter 
anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. You know, I I notice something every day whenever I'm out and about, and I know you could too. So just be aware of that. And until our next show, ask those you do business with and those you work for if they are doing all that they can do to secure the information that you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe. We'll be right back. 